Hello, my name is Stephen Smith, the owner of 3Pi Squared, and this is the ABA Business Leaders Podcast. Before we get into the episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our membership program. 3Pi Squared has helped over 700 ABA practices start up and expand. Our membership has over 45 hours of content from experts in the fields of law, accounting, diversity and inclusion, childhood development, mindfulness, business development, HIPAA compliance, marketing and branding, billing, and more. We also have discounts on things like our 3Pi Squared handbooks, professional liability insurance, background checks, HIPAA compliant email, contacts, calendars, and cloud storage. The membership also includes 33 CEUs, live Ask Us Anything events where you can come on and ask your questions as you're going through the program. And in our app, you can also add anonymous questions and get your answers. To learn more about the membership, please go to our website, www.3pisquared.com and click on ABA Business Leaders. And now let's get to the episode. Hello, everyone. We have Molly back with us today, and we are going to be discussing the topics of abuse, fraud, and waste. And so I'm going to introduce Molly, and then we'll we'll get right into it. So Molly is a California licensed attorney with eight years of experience in the healthcare industry. She has worked with large and small healthcare organizations, advising on organization liability, staff and patient safety, state and federal compliance, and clinical trials. So thank you very much, Molly. Um, And if you want to go ahead and take it away. Sure. Um, So today we're going to be talking about fraud, waste, and abuse. This is a topic that comes pretty frequently when discussing healthcare compliance. Um, Because there are so many regulations in healthcare, there are a lot of ways where providers can either intentionally or inadvertently you know, fail to follow any set of given regulations. Um, So one of the most common ones is fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, The number one thing to know about fraud, waste, and abuse is intention does play into it a lot in terms of how agencies like CMS or Medicare are going to look at a potential violation. So just as some key points, the first thing to know is that fraud is typically more knowing. Um, it, I mean, you're purposely trying to misrepresent some type of a fact or a billing guideline. Um, as far as waste goes, that's a little less intentional generally, though there can be intentional waste as well. Um, but that would be things like billing for unnecessary costs, over-diagnosing a patient, things like that, where you're kind of charging for services that might not be needed. And then there's abuse where, uh, again, this also kind of plays into unnecessary costs as well. One thing that goes into abuse a lot is upcoding, where you potentially input an an ICD code where the patient might need a lesser level of service, but you're kind of giving them the maximum just because you know, you know, Medicare or insurance is going to reimburse for it. So those are the three levels. And again, it really depends on the intention, the circumstances, and how much of a violation there are. Um, is how they're going to decide 
you know, what level of scrutiny they need to uh, provide. And just like a question on this, because I, I imagine this is really tough to police. Like, is this going to be someone is reporting you, like a patient is reporting you? Or is that kind of how this kind of gets in, like the government gets involved? You know, yes, that's definitely a way that it can happen. I think more so it's caught by um, coding experts and billing experts. Patients, I think, tend to trust their mm. providers a lot more to give them what's necessary. And so I don't think there's generally a lot of questioning. Obviously, there are patients who are very in tune with their care, and so they are well aware of what they need and don't need. But by and large, I think most patients trust their providers, and so they don't typically question um, how things like this get caught are by regulatory agencies, by billing experts, people who are wondering why the codes might not match up with the service that was provided. So I think that's probably the more common way to see that. So this would be coming like directly from Medicaid checking or um, or a funding mm-hmm. source, okay. Right, or a hospital um, billing staff gotcha. member who is wondering what's, what's going, going on, on with this particular. Okay, got it. Um, and so this chart is kind of just a little breakdown of, of what these types of errors might look like. Uh, there are you know things that are mistakes where it's maybe someone just typed the code in wrong and it's as simple as that. Um, there was no intention behind it. Then there are things that are, you know, inefficient or wasteful, again, in terms of ordering wrong tests or over-ordering tests. Um, then there are improper billing practices, upcoding, which I mentioned before. And then there's obviously intentional deception, which is fraud. Um, and those are things that in a, a few slides we'll talk about in relation to physicians, you know, getting kickbacks mm-hmm. and things like that for providing certain services. Um, so just at the bottom, I have some examples where, you know, you're potentially uh, billing Medicare for a piece of equipment, like let's say a wheelchair that the patient doesn't even need or doesn't use or never got. Um, those are all things that can affect this. And then or documentation that's incorrect and not properly monitored. Um, your dates and descriptions of your services are are off. And then, of course, false information where you are essentially telling a patient that they need something that they don't or you're utilizing a patient's Medicare billing number without actually telling them what services they're going to be receiving. So a lot of things related to um, not communicating properly and not making sure your documentation is correct. So then there are a lot of laws around this. Um, they they all kind of touch on a few different parts of fraud, waste, and abuse, but they there are there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, So the False Claims Act, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard about this. And this, again, goes to things like upcoding, not necessary services or not providing services, even if you got paid by Medicare for them. Um, There's anti-kickback, which is where a physician potentially maybe has some type of financial interest in a home health. They get paid by the agency to refer patients to home health care with this agency, even if the patient doesn't necessarily need it. So that would be considered a kickback. And that is very, very highly illegal. So um, whenever physicians do decide to have a financial interest in agencies like that or other clinics, they have to be really careful that they're still putting patient care first and not just offering referrals for the sake of getting reimbursed. And similarly with the Stark um, law, it's kind of the same thing. If a, if a physician has a financial interest in a lab or a home health care or a hospice, anything like that. And so that is their sole basis for referring patients to that service. 
then that is something that is very highly scrutinized as well. We had a question around this, right, on multidisciplinary companies where uh, the diagnosing physician was in the the practice. And so, like, I think that may be kind of what, you know, you're talking about here. Like, there's a potential for fraud where, like, they know, okay, if I diagnose this person, we're going to be able to get provide them services and maybe they don't necessarily need them. So in those situations, like, do mm-hmm. you have any recommendations on how you can do that? Cause I assume that that's okay to do as long as it's done uh, without fraud. So is, is there, are there good things to put mm-hmm. in place some barriers that may, you know, uh, make it more difficult in those situations? Yeah. So there, uh, let me just say there are some some, I guess you would say workarounds or exceptions to the self-referral statute, wherein if a physician has an interest in some other type of lab or agency or anything like that, where they do get financial reimbursement for patients that are seen there, there are ways that it won't necessarily be an issue. So one of the ways is if the patient expresses a preference for going to that particular lab or that particular or working with that particular home health agency. And that can be for, to my knowledge, that can be for a variety of reasons. For example, maybe you know, the patient wants to go to, to Quest Lab because it's close to their house. It's right down the street right. as opposed to LabCorp, which is 20 minutes away. So if a patient expresses that type of preference, then that's one reason. Another reason is if the patient, um, Medicare will only cover if the patient receives treatment at that right. particular location, That even then even if a physician gets some sort of reimbursement for a referral, the Medicare portion will override that. Then the last way is... Um, if the physician believes that it's in the patient's best medical interest, and this has to be a true belief by the physician, that it's in their best medical interest to um, receive services at that particular location. So, in fact, the other day I was talking to a physician who had an interest in a surgical center, um, and he was just inquiring about what he could do as far as referrals, and I was kind of going through all this checklist with him. And so I was saying, if you truly believe that um, the particular surgery that this patient needs is best done at this facility, or maybe they have some new type of technology that other facilities don't have, and so you think it's in their best medical interest to go there, you can document that and then send them there, even if you have a financial interest in that agency. But it has to be a bona fide, true, you know, honest reason that you want to Do you think that, like, is it is it a good idea, just in your experience, to have a diagnosing physician in the same group that is going to also be treating like, is that okay to do in, in your experience? Yes, I think it's okay to do. I think you still want to be very careful that you're not over-diagnosing for the purpose of right. them receiving treatment. And again, with a lot of the fraud, waste, and abuse stuff, um, the reason that I started off by saying right. intention matters, circumstance matters, is because that's really the only way they're going to determine what you were thinking when you made this referral or when you ordered this type of treatment. So it really depends on what is medically necessary. And then just last question on this, like if you are, if your diagnosing physician or whoever is in the same group, we should be giving the patient multiple uh, options, right? Like you can go with us and get treatment, but there's also X company, Y company that you could, Would that be best case scenario? 
if the service you are offering can be offered at multiple different places, then I definitely think you can provide them with that alternative. However, one of the safest ways to do that is if you tell them, you know, I think, for example, I think you need an endoscopy. We do an endoscopy in-house, but I'm not sure that the insurance reimbursement will be the same as if you go to someone in your network. So I recommend you contact your insurance company and ask them what cost differences there are for endoscopy and kind of redirect them in that manner, I think is a really safe way to go. Okay, thank you. That brings up a real, I mean, that's a really good point because that's very applicable for some of our... um, Multidisciplinary practices. Right, especially some of the clinics that may have like some in-house... Yeah, like I, I've had, um, you know, I've worked with some on the patient level with some people who, for example, like they're going to get an endoscopy and their primary care provider will kind of refer them to someone that he mm-hmm. has regularly referred patients to and kind of has that relationship. But then they end up going and they get hit with this bill because their insurance company doesn't actually pay for that particular clinic. So it's always good to have your patient's knowledgeable about contacting their insurance and making sure that it's a covered service. Um, So then just some general strategies to, one, detect uh, fraud, waste, and abuse, and also prevent it. Obviously, number one is training, education, making sure that your providers, your staff are all aware of, you know, when overdiagnosing might come into play, um, when patients should, again, be encouraged to talk to their insurance company about what's reimbursable or check with Medicare about what's reimbursable. Documentation is really important, making sure that as you're inputting these treatment codes, they're being put in correctly. You know, having someone who is well-versed in compliance who can kind of guide uh, your practice on what to do. I, I know we talked that it's easier to do if you're in a big organization because they typically have a compliance officer, sometimes a whole department dedicated to compliance. I know when you're in a smaller practice, it can be a little bit harder to have mm-hmm. a designated person. Um, and so in that circumstance, I would recommend having a committee of a few people who can maybe sit down every, you know, once a month even and just kind of go over some of the last billing and making sure that it's correct. Uh, making sure the diagnoses are correct. So that's one. That's another thing that I think is really important to just kind of have a regular review process. And then, of course, if you find some type of violation, making sure that if it needs to be corrected, it's corrected, having a corrective action plan in place, understanding what you need to do in terms of reporting to Medicare so that you can pay back any excess that might not have been owed. Things like that are all really important, and and once you make it a ongoing process, it's I think much easier to to one spot the issues, but also make sure that you're remaining in constant. One thing that comes to mind looking at these strategies are like my um, agency was in home health, um, in home ABA clinic, and we had techs and clinicians going into the homes, and you know filling out timesheets providing these services. And so we put several layers in place to make sure that by the time we submitted these claims to the insurance, that we were pretty certain that the time in and time out of billing the service was accurate. You know, not necessarily intention, but like it could also be mistake. Or and then also like teaching our, our staff that the importance of being really accurate within the reporting. You know, if your session's from like two to four it may be easy just to throw two to four on the timesheet because that's the time that you were right. you were like supposed to be there. But let's say maybe you got there ten minutes because you got caught in traffic and 
you know, making sure it's important that you do put, you know, to 11 as your start time to really make sure that you're precise in documenting the time. And then we also had like a calendar Mm -hmm. check to make sure that, you know, someone was where they said they were, you know, so we had lots of things in place that I feel like it's something to think about when you are doing like that in-home help to make sure that we were catching as much as possible and geotagging locations and then what we would we would also have is like if there was a discrepancy between the calendar and the timesheets we would uh i think it was more than 15 minutes we would be okay what happened you know what was going on you know and so not only did this help our team have a good idea of what is going on but it also let our staff know oh, wow, they are looking at this stuff, right? Like they look on this ad on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And so I think all of those pieces can really help with that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's really important what you said about even if it's a mistake, like if if it's a mistake, they might not be as um, stringent as in a punitive way. Like they might not really want to punish you because they understand the intention wasn't there. But it doesn't mean that you won't owe back the money. So if you have been making the same billing mistake for a year, you're going to find yourself hit with a really huge Medicare reimbursement bill. So even mistakes still, you know, carry a hefty, yeah, can carry absolutely. a hefty penalty. I, I did have a question about, um, and I don't know, this kind of probably matches an earlier slide, but, you know, so part of what the clinician does is they, you know, after assessment, they determine how many hours of treatment that a child or or the client needs, right? I'm I'm curious to know if that would fall under, I don't know if it was that earlier slide with the chart, but if that would fall, like, so if you did an assessment on a child and you come out of it saying, okay, this, this child needs 10 hours a week of ABA therapy, but you know, insurance typically will allow 30 hours for a child at this age and this particular diagnosis. So we'll just go ahead and, and request 30 hours a week and the authorization and, and you, the insurance is like, okay, sure. You can have 30 hours a week. And so you're treating this child 30 hours a week when really they could make sufficient progress and do well at 10 hours a week right. um would that fall under one of these like i don't know intentional deceptions or like excessive diagnostic tests type thing like would it would that fall under something so in that scenario i, I think it would fall under um you know over diagnosing or over treating if i'm understanding what you're saying correctly because of the type of treatment you might not see you know very harsh results of that because i think especially with things like rehab i mean you really can't do too much in terms of over rehabbing something you're kind of something that you're going to constantly need but i think more so in things related to um, chronic illness and medication and things like that where it can have a really negative medical effect on the patient if you are going overboard not to say that you shouldn't be concerned in the circumstance you mentioned, but you know, it can have really detrimental effects if you're doing it, depending on what the patient's treatment plan is. So um, I would say it's always a good idea to stick with what's medically necessary. You can always add more if you think that the patient needs more down the line. So I, I you know, it's just really, it, it really relies heavily on a physician's medical judgment to be, have integrity um, and to be correct. With yeah, I, I think that there is some pressure in, in this 
particular field. And I think Florida is a good example of what is going on with fraud and Medicaid and ABA, right? They at one point put a moratorium, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's still on, of accepting new ABA companies because of the blatant and like just so much fraud going on on that side. So there, I think that that is mm-hmm. definitely something to be a concern. And if a provider feels they are in that situation where they are kind of constantly, you know, like the expectation may intentionally or unintentionally is, yeah, okay, it, you can get 15, but we can really get 25. Right, because um, you want to get the, yes, those billable yes, hours yes. then. And yeah. so, like, do you have any recommendations for a provider in that kind of situation, like, uh, other than get out as quickly as possible? Uh, like, should they be going ahead and reporting this? Or, like, what what is their responsibility in this situation? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, first and foremost, if they're encountering this on a regular basis with hopefully, you know, a clinic that they have a decent working relationship with, I think it definitely warrants a conversation or two. And in that conversation, being very clear about their comfort level and, you know, how it affects them personally, because it can affect their license as well. Um, So I think that would be a first starting point. And if they're not seeing progress, then absolutely they do have an obligation to report things like that, especially if they're detrimental to patient care. Um, They can report anonymously as a whistleblower. So I I definitely think if, you know, the first couple of conversations don't work, then you you have to take it into your own hands because ultimately it can blow back on you negatively. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to just mention, I know that you said that you've been seeing this type of stuff a lot in Florida. One thing that I've been seeing a lot is related to hospice care where, you know, there's certain requirements that hospice care is only provided to um, someone who has six months or less to live, but they're still referring these patients who maybe just need mm. palliative care or some lesser level to these hospice, um, either in-home or on-site hospice treatment. So that's one of the areas that I've been seeing a huge increase um, in, in fraud or abuse. So that's just one thing. I don't know if any of your listeners are involved in hospice, right. but that's yeah, a thing I to keep that. I, I mean, I, I think that that's probably a very similar situation, right? Like right, it's, it's really not harm anybody. Yeah, no, no. Per se, like right. over medication might. Right. But it's still it's like still, yes. Yeah. yeah. And there is really I mean, it's unfortunate, right, that this is the system we have. And I don't know of a better system, even with Medicaid, right? But there is an incentive to give more, right? Especially if there is no real you know, there's there's no risk, risk involved person. in it. So I think, like you said, having some kind of a compliance officer or having someone, you know, putting that in the system where you have the checks in place so that there isn't that incentive mm-hmm. well, to know, begin with. I was thinking about with, with, with our agency, um, you know, we had a lead BCBA mm-hmm. and case reviews were a common, like monthly case reviews right. on and so, like, really looking at, like, the hours prescribed for, for services and looking at the treatment plans and, and the goals for the child and looking at the medical necessity and, you know, are the um, acquisition rate, are they acquiring new skills, are they progressing, are they, you know, whatever, all the pieces to have that, like, second person to be able to, like, check, mm-hmm. you know, not that anyone's necessarily doing anything mm-hmm. wrong on purpose, but just to have all of those steps in place so that there is a team working together so it doesn't follow one person. I think that's kind of seems to be, I know, like you said earlier, it definitely is harder in a smaller agency to do that type of thing. But when you have 
more people involved working together and checking each other and working towards like a common goal, it yeah. seems to really be, I, be helpful. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And another thing to um, keep in mind with that in the scenario that you mentioned, if you have someone who's receiving, you know, 30 sessions of treatment when they could have been fine with 10, as a provider, um, you have to document each session that they have. So if you are documenting and after session 10, they're not making any real progress, someone might question that and say, well, why were they still receiving sessions if the documentation from session 10 to 30 says the same thing or there's very little Mm -hmm. improvement. Um, So that's another thing to keep in mind in a way that this type of stuff is discovered, you know, when there's no no progressive improvement in the treatment. And I know like this is more around Medicaid and Medicare, but like another issue that comes up from time to time, especially in this field. Now it may not be like this in other fields, but like some funders will allow for certain code to be billed more than other funders. And so, you know, after six months to a year, you just kind of know, right? Like, Funder A, they're going to allow me 15 hours to do this thing. Funder B, they're only going to allow me three. And so, like, if everything is equal, you have two patients, both needing 10 hours, but you bill three, you only do three for the one that you know you're only going to get reimbursed for, and you do 15 for the other one. Are we, like, is that also the same situation? Or, you know, does that make sense? I think so. I mean, I think it's, what you're saying is okay, provided that the patient needs those sessions. And if the billing, if if billing is most efficient by utilizing mm-hmm. two funders, then I think that that's fine as long as the patient is getting the, the care that they need. Um, it's really just more questionable when they are getting an overabundance of care um, with any type of either one per funder or two funders or whatever, however it's broken down, the focus is really on the patient care. So if you think that a patient can uh, reasonably utilize three sessions here, 15 sessions here, and that's the most efficient way to bill um, and will also result in, you know, a lower cost for the patient or, you know, however it works out, then I think that's perfectly fine. Um, so then I just included this example just so everyone could really see how this works in practicality. Uh, this is a recent case. I think it happened in 2020, and the physicians were actually sentenced just, I, I think mm-hmm. one even just last month, there was four involved. Um, but they had this very elaborate Medicare scheme where they were basically overprescribing um, unnecessary back injections to patients, and they would go and just find patients uh, they were actually even going to the Skid Row area, if everyone knows what that means, wow. like the homeless area, um, and getting patients, bringing them in, saying that they needed this type of injection, then prescribing opioid prescriptions in very high doses just for the purpose of billing Medicare. Um, and so this went on for several years. They billed, you know, they were all millionaires by the time all was said and done because they were right. just billing excessively. Um, and they got found out, you know, they they had billed several million dollars. Um, the most recent person was sentenced to four years in prison. His license was revoked. These types of crimes are not, they don't go unpunished, especially when they're at a certain level. So I just wanted to put that in there to show that there is, there are consequences. And so, again, depending on your intention, they might not be this severe. Um, but, you know, there there are things that can really affect your ability to yeah. practice. I, I think most of our viewers in this group and both groups that we have are like, like, just tell me what I need to do. So I'm doing it right. Right. And I, 
Like we're all just wanting to be able to sleep at night. It's hard to not look at that and just go, wow. Um, and then just some key points to remember. Again, I know I've said it a million times, but intention and circumstance matters. Um, they do take that into account. Improper payments are truly often mistakes. Most people are not like the positions we just talked about where they're out to just intentionally defraud. But that doesn't mean that these mistakes, you know, won't be found to be violations and that you won't owe money back. You know, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, they're all really diligent or they try to be really diligent about making sure that they're not overpaying, especially because of their federally or government funded programs. Mm -hmm. This is tax dollars. So they want to be really good stewards of this money. At least that is what they say. <laughs> so they do try to, um, you know, really monitor this type of stuff. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, in addition to the prevention stuff we talked about earlier, is there are also non-physician or non clinical providers who do Medicare schemes. Um, they'll find someone's Medicare number. They will try to provide that in a way that they can get reimbursed for certain services that they're not providing. They're probably not even providers, but they still get paid because they're billing under this Medicare number. So one thing to encourage your patients to do is keep that information, you know, very private and personal to themselves and not give it out freely because that's another way where, you know, they can be at risk. That's good to know. Yeah, that's good information. So, yeah, I mean, just as an overall, it's really important to document, make sure your billing codes are correct. Um, you know, if you feel like something's wrong in your practice or your home health agency, say something. Um, a lot of times if you bring up, you know, incorrect billing practice, I, like again, like I said, I think most people want to correct. So if you see something, don't just think that it'll go away. Make sure you say something and bring it to the two whoever's in charge. No, that's, that's great. And then as like, again, most of this group is either thinking about becoming an owner or they already are. And so having those policies mm -hmm. and, and things in place, like another good thing to have in place is a whistleblower policy, right? So that again, it's just, you know, having those constant checks in place and then having the policies that mm -hmm. show that, hey, we're just trying to do the right thing and we do the checks and we have the policies is going to, I think, across the board, your your staff are going to see, okay, this is serious. Um, and then the other thing is like having, in our field is like session note training. So again, they understand the seriousness that session notes really, like these are legal documents, we're gonna be submitting these forms. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure that they're correct. Uh, the time is correct, the codes are correct and the services that we provide are, um, uh, we have evidence for them. Yeah. All right. That was a lot in a little bit of time, but I, I really appreciate uh, you doing this for us and I will eventually get to the right screen with you on it. There we go. But yeah, so thank you again for coming on and, and just going over you know a difficult topic with us. Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, I hope this was informative to your listeners. I know it was a lot in a short amount of time and there's even more that's involved right. in the details. So, um, you know, I, I'm always available if you ever yeah, want to have absolutely. a part two. So, <laughs> and if anyone watching, listening, comments, please, 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 if you have any questions and then we can bring Molly back on. She's going to come on for something else completely different. But, you know, if we have some questions as follow up, we'll get those answered as quickly as we can. All right. Thank you again, Molly. I appreciate it. I 
hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to learn more about 3Pi Squared and the products and services that we provide, please go to www.3pisquared.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe or add it to your favorites. This way you won't miss any episodes. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching 3Pi Squared. Thank you so much for listening.